This program is brought to you by Emory University. Uh, so what I want to do today is tell you about some work that we've been doing uh, in my lab over the last, well, I don't know, five or ten years now. Um, what we've been doing is looking at, uh, at the broadest level, looking at early understanding of the social world. And uh, what I mean by that, okay, here's, here's your social world. Um, let's find human, okay, well, since I study babies, there's the baby in it, and we all face this task every day, and especially in situations where we're meeting new people and so on, like at a conference or um, whatever, but we face this up constantly. And so there's a little baby, we have to figure out, okay, in this whole world, what is our relationship to different individuals? What's their relationship to each other? What groups of individuals go, you know, how do they group up? And what's their relationship with each other and with me? Um, and what I want to claim from the findings that I've obtained so far and looking at these things is that we're assessing others and doing this kind of mapping in the social world from very, very early in life um, on the basis of a whole host of features and dimensions, uh, people's social and psychological traits, their behaviors, their affiliations and conflicts with each other. And these assessments guide our attitudes towards others, uh, our, as well as our actions to them and our opinions about them and, and also about what we think are their just desserts. Um, both in ways that as adults we can look at and say, oh good, that's moral and that's fair, those are uh, appropriate assessments for, for guiding those kinds of attitudes, but also in some ways that we as a reflective, you know, uh, reflective mature being say, yeah, that does not look so moral, we don't like that, we don't, you know, that's not fair, and we don't want it. Um, so, uh, I'm not going to try to define what is fair, but I just want to highlight one of the things that came up over and over again yesterday. It doesn't mean treating others the same. That can be fair, but it need not be fair. What we mean by it is treating others as they are deserving of. So we have been looking, among other things, at uh, what we, how ba what babies think uh, others are deserving of. Um, and you'll see a little bit more about that um, as I talk. So babies' judgments of just dessert. And I'm going to give two examples of babies' judgments of others. Uh, one that agrees with our intuitions of what's appropriate uh, and one where these judgments lead to um, not, not what we are happy to see. Uh, so here's my baby wearing a little judge's wig, sitting solemnly, um, ready to, to be an impartial decider of, of justice. Uh, the first question we asked was, do babies judge others on the basis of their behavior at all? And what we did was simply show babies a situation where this individual is trying to get up a hill, and another individual comes and helps the climber reach the hilltop. And then in the next scene, this climber is again trying to get up the hill, but instead of being helped by the little blue circle, he's pushed down the hill, um, this example by, by the red square. And we simply wanted to know, do babies have, you know, we see that as adults, and uh, well, I've seen it a million times, but other 
child should see it for the first time, say they get a, you know, they, they like the blue circle, uh, they don't like the red square, they have different attitudes towards the pro-social character that helped and the anti-social character that hindered. And so our, no, did that right. so our first question was simply, do babies also have preferences? And the way we ask, <laughs> do babies have a difference in preference for these two characters? Uh, well, we have two different ways of asking. Um, one way is for babies who are old enough to reach, we simply hand them the two characters by an experimenter who doesn't know which character has been the helpful character and which character has been the, the unhelpful character, uh, and see who they orient to and who they reach for, who they actually want to interact with in this way. Uh, for babies who are too young to reach, these are three-month-olds in some of our studies. Uh, they are not reliable reachers at this point. We, we hold them out and simply measure uh, babies looking. Do they orient more towards one character than the other uh, in their looking time for uh, a 30-second period or a 20-second period? And um, here's a little, just to show you, this is a 10-month-old baby who saw the version that you just saw where the blue circle is the helper and the red square is the hinder, so she's just seen the events. Now she's presented with the two choices. The experimenter doesn't know who's who. The baby knows who's who. So that's, that's what a 10-month-old looks like. Um, we've got uh, a number of different scenarios in addition to the Hill scenario, just so that you can see what all we have shown babies. Um, get a picture of the variety of pro-social and anti-social scenarios they're shown. Here's a puppet who sees a cool toy inside of a box, and in slightly incompetent puppet fashion, is not very effective at opening the box, but the gray kitty helps him open the box. And we contrast that with the <coughs> scene where, again, he wants to get the toy in the box. But this time it is the orange puppet who comes along and foils his attempt. And then, speaking of possession, uh, okay, this puppet who has a ball and is playing with it and kind of rolls it over to another puppet who Nonverbal back and forths, um, who in a nice reciprocal, reciprocal fashion uh, returns it back to him versus this character who runs away and absconds with the ball off stage. So we have our three different scenarios, one involving a location goal to get up the top of the hill, one involving what you might call an object goal to reach a, a, a toy inside of a box that has an instrumental requirement of opening the box, and another that may not even be best parsed in, in goal terms, but just uh, a nice reciprocal interaction versus non-reciprocative running away with a, with a good or maybe being construed as taking someone's possession. Um, and here, in all of these, we've got our different ages of babies, and we ask, do babies prefer 
one of these characters over the other. Um, and here I just wanted to show you what a three-month-old looks like. Uh, so I'm going to show you a, a video a few seconds long. You're going to see a three-month-old, uh, and you're going to see just on the two edges, uh, the, the three-month-old is looking out and someone's holding her the two toys. So you can kind of see an ear of one puppet and an ear of another puppet. And you're you are now the experimental coder, and your task is to see if she's looking longer at, at one than at the other. This is what a three-month-old looks like. And for bonus points, you can ask if she looks like she may actually be having more positive facial expressions when looking at one than the other. That's very hard to do with three-month-olds. Yeah. 
we decide who to give it to? Who do you want to give it to? That cup. Okay. Remember the and then the other situation where they, uh, again, it's a scenario where there's not enough treats to go around, so they have to take away a treat from one of these to give it to another puppy. Oh, no! Look what I found. A puppy who didn't get a treat. Look, his bowl is empty. I think we need to take one of these guys' treats and give it to him. We can take a treat from this guy or from this guy and give it to him. Can you help me decide who to take a treat from? Him? Okay, she has no trouble choosing. So, um, here are our results. When they are having a treat to hand out, they robustly prefer giving it to the pro-social character. If they have to take away a treat from somebody, they robustly choose the antisocial character to take it away from. So, when they're forced to punish somebody, um, you know, they've got a forced choice here, babies will choose the antisocial character. When they're, you know, given a forced choice of who to bestow a treat to, they choose the pro-social character. Um, to ask even more strongly, do babies actively want um, the, the negative character to receive some bad effect. Uh, we moved to, ah, there's two ways of asking this question. One is uh, of answering the question. One is to show you an anecdote. Um, to show you, we, we did see a little amount of spontaneous behavior and spontaneous responses, uh, social type responses to the characters uh, during our experiments. So this child has just uh, done the uh, taking of a treat situation. Uh, this is a very, very short clip. Um, watch, don't blink. Um, but, all right, you, pow, right, the kisser. Um, and yeah, that's the antisocial character. We do occasionally see this in a few babies uh, and toddlers where they actually, you know, occasionally will do something like this or a little more frequently will pick up one of the characters and hug them. Uh, and there, we have not yet seen a case where they uh, are doing, are, are acting inappropriately. That is, the positive behaviors going to pro-social characters and negative behaviors to anti-social characters. But to ask much more systematically, um, we wanted to ask more systematically and also to ask it of younger subjects. So we moved to how do babies uh, what do babies think about others who treat these characters uh, in various, in good ways or bad ways? Uh, how do they want others to treat a helpful character? How do they want others to treat a hindering or antisocial character? So the way these studies go, uh, go uh, first, babies see one of our shows, uh, in this case the ball giving example. So one character, one of those uh, bunny rabbit puppets, has been nice and given the ball back, uh, and the other has been not nice and run away with the ball. And then in phase two of the study, uh, either involves, for half of the babies, it involves the character who ran away with the ball. Uh, and this character comes down and is trying to open our box, and one of the kitties helps him open it, and the other kitty slams it shut. Of course, for the other half of the babies, it's the character who gave back the ball that is now trying to open the box. 
uh, and it's helped and hindered by these two different kittens. So our questions here are, uh, who does baby prefer among the helpful and hindering kitties? Um, and does that vary as a function of, of who's trying to open the box? So how do babies want the puppet who gave the ball back to be treated when that puppet's now trying to open the box? Do they want it to be helped? Do they want it to be hindered? And how do they feel um, about the taker? Do they want the taker in his or her turn to be helped uh, or hindered? So when the giver was the target, the nice, friendly, reciprocal, ball-playing puppet is now trying to open the box. Uh, subjects of all of our ages that we tested, five months old on up, uh, chose the rewarder. Uh, they like the puppet who helps that character open the box. Um, if it's the taker that's the target, five month olds are still choosing the rewarder. It's nice to be nice. Let's all have a nice party. Um, everybody's nice, so that's nice. Uh, by eight months of age, they're choosing the punishment. They want to see this absconder of goods. Um, I'm going to say they want to see them punished. I think it probably just has to do with, I, I'm thinking they're, you know, making some overall computation on fairness and trying to restore some level of fairness uh, in some sense, possibly. Uh, we don't know whether our five-month-olds are, there's two interpretations. One is that they actually want every, you know, they want the world to be this utopia where everybody is treated nicely all the time. The more, in my mind, the more likely explanation for this effect is that it's possible, you know, our scenarios here are a little bit more complex. There's two different stages and a lot more characters involved. And if we could ask the question in a much simpler way that didn't require so many cognitive demands of five goals, we might find uh, that there ends up a shift. But we do know that early in their first year, uh, babies are already making judgments about when it is uh, what I might call assessing a global failings, when it's appropriate uh, or desired or to be condoned on the baby's part to be antisocial to someone, and when it's appropriate um, to, to treat them well. So a couple of further findings of this whole line of results that I wanted to give you. Um, we have done contrasts of how babies feel with regard to pro-social characters versus neutral characters, and they prefer pro-social to neutral, and they also prefer neutral to antisocial. So they both are drawn towards the positive and uh, re repulsed by, pushed away from the negative. The exception to this is our very youngest subjects look as if they are, have an aversion to negative uh, before having an attraction to positive. So uh, we refer to this as a negativity bias, and this is consistent with a lot of work with older children and adults and older infants, showing that in a lot of domains, particularly social domains, um, but non-social domain, negative information can speak louder than positive information and carry more weight. And so our youngest babies are, are looking like the negative is speaking more powerfully to them. We know that these preferences are specific to social events, the, the social natures of our scenarios. If we have, say, for example, 
one example of our various control non-social experiments, if you have characters pushing an inanimate ball up a hill, and a different character pushing, pushing an inanimate ball down a hill, we don't find a preference for the pushing up character versus the pushing down character. We have parallel controls in our other uh, scenarios as well. It is judgments that are very specifically relating to the social meanings of these actions. And then finally, we find that babies themselves emulate uh, the pro-social characters, not the anti-social characters. So um, if we give them, this is, this is Lizzie Madba, who's about to present babies, you see two bowls of food, and she's holding one of the puppets in her hand, either the pro-social character from one of our scenarios or the anti-social guy. She doesn't know which. Um, and all she does is go do, 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 or a neutral character. Um, and the puppet explains, tastes both foods and proclaims a liking of one. Mm, this is yummy, I like this. And then tastes the other. Ooh, this is yucky, I don't like that. Uh, and then we give babies four trials to do their own uh, choice of tasting um, between these two bowls. And what we find is that babies like to emulate people in general. Uh, they emulate the neutral character, and they emulate the positive character significantly greater than chance. There's not actually a significant difference here between each other. Babies are, I think, built to like want to imitate and emulate um, other people around them. That's part of what it how you, you know, belong to your culture uh, and embed yourself in it. But you see a real inhibition to emulate themselves after the negative guy. And I think this is a very, my favorite take on this is that um, we want to be like people that we like. It's part of, it, 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 we have this very nice mechanism that helps orient us to, um, We've got this feedback loop. We like people who are like us, and we want to be like people that we like, and then you know, then we're like them, and then they like us, and then they want to be like us. And so all of these things feed together. There are other readings, too, of what might be going on here. One of them is maybe babies feel that the pro-social characters are more accurate uh, conveyors of truthful information about the world, um, and maybe one of those foods actually is better. I don't think that that is the right to take care. We notice even once babies have tasted both foods, they, after they've themselves sampled, they still will go more often, subsequent to that, to the food that the puppet expressed a liking for, um, when it's a pro-social puppet or the neutral puppet, not the anti-social puppet. So I think it's more about who am I going to model myself after? Um, and I think it's really nice that there's a, a you know, a little ray of positivity that we, we um, uh, by my uh, favorite interpretation, are built to model ourselves after the good guys. So, so are these moral responses? These are just to reward and inclinations to, to punish and uh, to orient ourselves and favor pro-social characters over negative ones? Well, they are. Uh, and I think also there's a way in which they are not. We're judging, these babies are judging good and bad social behavior. And that's squarely in the domain of, of moral judgment and cognition. So in that sense, I think they clearly are providing a basis, um, are, are, you know, in the domain of, of what we mean when we refer to morality. And here's justice being 
wearing her little blindfold, uh, just to remind you to make the point that these babies are not satisfying some really strong version of, of the desideratum that, that justice is blind. They, um, you know, they, they know which character's done what when they're making their responses for sure, but they're satisfying a weaker version, which is they themselves have not previously interacted with these characters, uh, these characters, they have no prior information other than how these characters have interacted with each other. Uh, and even though the baby, uh, the interactions they've seen, the baby has been sitting back, a, disinter uh, a disinterested bystander, third party, there's capable of rendering systematic judgments of who's to be preferred um, over the other one. However, these judgments are part of a much broader system of social judgments um, that make a consistent pattern um, that go beyond the domain of judgment on the basis of social behavior. And um, I think they're part of a more general pattern that we do not want to say is, is moral or is just or is fair. And this brings me to part two of my talk. I would, of everything I've said up till now, I hope has convinced you, I truly believe that when you get this look from a baby, it is not gas. It's not, you know, they're doing what they're looking like they're doing. This baby is really judging you, and you are, you know, you're, you're there, you're, you know, this is your, you know, this is, you better, you know, you're getting the judgment. And they're analyzing you, and they're evaluating you, and they're trying to determine what is the meaning of this individual to me here now. Um, we know babies make a lot of social preferences. Thank you so much. The rest of this talk is going to be shades of Liz Selke, of, of what you just heard. Um, uh, we know babies have a variety of dimensions along which they orient towards some individuals over others. Uh, Judith Lane Wan and her colleagues have looked at attractiveness. <sighs> it's not going to surprise you, maybe, um, that babies are kind of like a lot of the rest of the world in giving preference to attractive individuals over um, unattractive individuals. Uh, as Liz described, there are effects where babies look longer at pictures of familiar race uh, over pictures of unfamiliar race faces, and as Liz and Kate's uh, work with language shows, babies prefer others who speak uh, their own language of their community um, or, um, or and, and with a native accent over those who speak a different language or with foreigners. I want to give three more examples of um, other early social preferences. Two really short ones. These, have, these three are all from my lab. Two really short because they're ongoing studies. We don't have a whole lot to say about it. They're just some early findings that may or may not hold up in the long time, but I thought I would share with you quickly, and then one that we've done a bit more work on. So uh, if you show babies two puppets, uh, each one's trying to do something like uh, get some little puffy puff balls and put them into a container, one of whom is really competent at the job, and the other of whom is incompetent, uh, babies will prefer the competent character over the incompetent character. Uh, <coughs> you show babies a character that has a bunch of valued resources. These are 
value, of the valued resources. Uh, they will prefer the, I'm calling shorthand, is a rich character, the character with many over the character with few. And this doesn't obtain if it's not an animate character. Um, these characters each go to their bananas and kind of interact with them and go yum, yum, yum. So, you know, they have this relationship with the bananas. Uh, these are, you know, this one interacts with all of these and this one just with this one. If it's just an inanimate box sitting there um, that an experimenter picks up and moves around, uh, babies do not care, you know, then you offer them a preference of which box to choose. They don't, they don't care for one box or the other. It's specifically a, we speculate, I mean, it's an early thing, but we think it's very specific to, I don't know if I want to say babies have a concept of ownership, but I think they may have a concept of possession um, or control of resource. And then as for my, as for my third example, uh, we know that humans like others who are similar to them. And I want to just quickly state, uh, without describing all the studies, but it's not, this is not peculiar to humans. There are, across the animal kingdom, uh, many different species who also prefer others who are similar to them over others who are more different. Um, the horse's example involves the tendency amongst many horses all out in big pastures to sometimes clump together, who knows why, the bays with the bays and the grays with the grays and the, you know, blacks with the blacks. The, the example of fish, uh, we all know different schools of fish that are different species, you know, Fish within a school are all the same species as each other, but even amongst a single species of fish, um, I, this is probably not true for all species of fish, but there are certain species of fish where they will have their own, a fish will have its own favored fish buddies for hanging out in the stream, underneath the rock, at the edge um, during the day. And if, if you go and analyze whose fish buddies with whom, uh, the fish that look more similar of the same species tend to like to hang with each other. So we're not alone in preferring others who are similar to us. We do know from a whole lot of social psychology research with adults that this tendency is pervasive and pretty promiscuous and, and ridiculous. Uh, take, you know, we can, can be observed in the laboratory to ridiculous extents uh, where any similarity will do, including um, if uh, you toss a coin and I toss a coin uh, and it, they both happen to come up heads, Philippe, I, well, if I didn't know you before, right, and that was all I knew, I have some inkling of positive uh, favoritism and disposition towards you that I don't towards you, Nicola, because yours came up tails, like if you're a stranger otherwise. So, um, and that's what's referred to as the minimal groups effect. So, also, these preferences have a, you know, have a number of different consequences uh, cascading across psychology. At the preferential level, we sort of prefer others who are similar to us uh, and we'll choose to you know, be with them over others. Uh, they impact our cognitions. We have more positive uh, social perceptions and expectations and judgments. Oh, uh, the other ones who roll the, the heads just like me are more likely to be smarter and more attractive and more moral upstanding characters and so on. Um, 
us in subtle ways in our judgment of what these individuals are deserving of. So we were interested in the developmental picture of this. Uh, how early does a preference for similarity emerge and what kinds of consequences may fall out from it uh, once we see it emerging. So, uh, prior graduate student and I, Neha Mahajan and I, um, asked the first question, do babies even like others who are similar to them? And we wanted to tease apart similarity from familiarity, uh, and also wanted to tease apart similarity from perceptual visual similarity. So the particular type of similarity we chose to look at was similarity of opinion, or similarity of taste. So the way this study went was babies come into our lab and we give them a choice out in the reception area. Hello, baby. Would you like some graham crackers or would you like some green beans? And just hold out the two foods. These were 11-month-olds uh, that are getting the food choice here. Um, so they started eating a little solid foods. Uh, and so the babies make a choice between one or the other. Most chose graham crackers, but we chose green beans because, you know, they're, they're green. I don't know why. Uh, then they come into our experimental room and they are introduced to two puppets, uh, one of whom likes the graham crackers and doesn't like the green beans, and the other of whom shows the reverse preference. And this is what the puppets do, just so you can see. Again, 
uh, an equally strong effect, or what we think is equally strong, uh, preferring the puppet who made the same choice as they did, expressed the same taste. We have one exception, and that is if you, instead of giving baby and puppets a choice of which mittens to wear, you simply put mittens of one or the other color on the baby, and simply put mittens of one or the other color on the two puppets, uh, babies choose equally. So the babies are still wearing their mittens while they're choosing. It's actually a more strong test of who's perceptually similar. Or, you know, the babies have a reminder that they don't even have a memory demand in this version because uh, they're still wearing their mittens and the puppets are wearing their mittens. They show no preference at all, whereas in the food or toy choice um, versions, or um, they have to remember what they themselves chose and remember what the, um, what the puppets chose. So what this tells me, uh, or tells us, is that babies aren't oriented to just have a preference for anyone who's perceptually similar to them, or maybe not to have a preference for anyone who's similar to them in a irrelevant way, where it would remain to be hashed out exactly what counts as irrelevant. Um, but they clearly do have a preference for those who are similar to them in a, in a relevant way, in this case, uh, who have a genuine difference in taste and preference, or a difference of opinion uh, to the baby, him or herself. So, okay, so that's fair enough. I like people who are similar to me and share my beliefs, and there's nothing, you know, wrong or sinister about liking others um, who are similar to us. But we can then ask the question, how should these individuals be treated? Um, how should those who are similar to us be treated? How do we want to see them be treated by others? How about those who are different from us? So again, to ask this question, the baby comes into the lab, chooses between the two foods, they are introduced to two puppets, each of whom expresses a preference for one or the other of the foods, and then either the similar puppet, let's say the baby chose graham crackers, the puppet who chose the same as the baby is trying to open the box and is helped and hindered by these other two characters, or for the other half of the babies, it's the puppet who chose different from them that is now helped and hindered, and we give babies the choice between the helper and the hinderer and ask whom do they prefer. And does that shift as a function of who the, the recipient of that aiding and abetting or the interference uh, is? When it's the similar recipient, the puppet who chose the same food as the baby, babies prefer the puppet that helps them. Yet, when it is the different recipient, it's just as strong an effect in the other direction. That baby, that puppet had the nerve to choose Cheerios when I chose graham crackers. I actually condone and am more drawn to the character who punishes that puppet uh, by slamming the box and shutting them than, than the puppet who, who helps that, that person. So, okay, so babies are not treating these two equally, um, that similarity itself is playing a role, like an important and significant role, I think, um, in their judgments. Why might we prefer someone who has a similar opinion to us, even in a relatively, you know, 
Well, we don't know whether babies understand how trivial a difference it is to prefer Cheerios to graham crackers. Why might humans be built with a preference for the similar? I think there's a number of interesting candidate possibilities, uh, and these are probably not, it doesn't even exhaust all the possibilities. Um, it may be beneficial to hang out with others who like what you like. Others who like graham crackers, maybe are going to be motivated to go out and search for graham crackers and find them and get them. And if you're all hanging out together, um, you know, you're hanging with them. You, you're oriented around the similar things uh, and similar preferences, so it may just be beneficial in that general sense. It's possible, uh, as Liz suggested, that others who are similar to you uh, in certain kinds of ways, that, that certain kinds of similarity are markers to in-group status or out-group status. Uh, some of the things I you know, tested in the thing, cuisine is a marker for a different ethnic group. Different ethnicities have different cuisines. Different social groups often have different dress, uh, different styles of fashion. And you don't have to go as broad as whole different ethnic groups, um, you know, and, and different cultures. We've got many microcultures in our own, you know, big culture here in, in the United States and certainly probably even here in Georgia and even here in Atlanta. We've got many different uh, microcultures of, of the big culture and we, we've got the culture of academic professors that would go to a fairness conference, right? And, and those things, there's many ways that, in, that if we suddenly mark which microgroup we belong to in our dress and this and that and the other, I'm not wearing six inch stiletto heels. I don't. I think I tried it on once and it totally didn't fit with my, I'm like, who? Everyone's going to think I'm somebody, I'm really not. I'm one of these academic, right? But we've got all of these ways of, you know, feeling, signaling what groups we belong to. Uh, here's a possibility that interests me. Uh, could orienting towards others who have similar opinions to us and liking them more and wanting to affiliate with them, could that actually further specific uh, goals and agendas and aid sort of political, what I'm calling political, and I mean that in a broad sense, um, ability to promote these kinds of interests. If I like others better that have similar interests and opinions and desires of my own, uh, we can make a, a coherent and cohesive group. We can create our own subgroup um, and by that commonality start try to you know, push that forward. And maybe it's important, um, you know, maybe this serves a lot of important function for, you know, when, when we talk about domains of preferring others who have the same political beliefs as we or the same religious beliefs and so on. So I don't have an answer to, to why we are built that way, but there may be, you know, there's multiple interesting candidate reasons. Okay, well, to state the obvious, we all, you know, would like to, have to be living in a society um, where individuals respect others and where other individuals respect each other uh, and respect that different people have different beliefs and respect the heterogeneity that, that we have um, in, in our society. And we don't want to have in our culture, you know, have our society be one where, where humans are full of dislike and hatred and mistreatment of others who are different. And of course, it, you know, there's a lot of exceptions to this. We do want to have hatred and you know, bad treatment be rained down upon 
the Hitlers of the world, the folks that are different enough in, in important certain specific kinds of ways, but liking graham crackers or green beans or preferring orange mittens to you know, yellow mittens. Or even I will go ahead and say, being Republican as opposed to Democrat, we don't want to have our society be one where these differences of opinion are a cause for, for mistreatment and hatred and this levels of strife that we see rampant. Um, so, how, I mean, it's useful, you know, it's nice to know how we're, how we're inherently built as humans. Can it actually be helpful and, and useful instrumentally in trying to make our society a better one? Uh, I have not done work that directly addresses this question. So I just want to raise it. It's an important question. I've started to think about the question. Um, to highlight a couple of the same things that Liz mentioned in her talk. Uh, we're built with some core systems of cognition. These core systems and core understandings of the world can't be erased and gotten rid of. But they do form foundations for learning. Learning happens upon them. They shape learning. And in particular, they shape how different types of inputs are interpreted. There's an interaction between experience and inputs and information that comes in with our core belief um, and core foundations. And different messages will interact with core preferences in different ways. So we can ask the question, given that we have such and so idea of what our core system is in a given domain, and given that we would love to have a society or uh, have people understand, you know, given that we would like this final result, what kinds of messages will interact with and build upon those core beliefs uh, and systems in ways that will maximally drive the learning um, and development in a direction that we desire and think is good? So I'm going to give just a couple of example questions that my work has raised for me in this line to, to give you a picture. And I'm, I'm, it's, it's short even of a speculation um, at this point. I don't have any data or any reason um, to, to come down in one way or another on the answer. But given that we are built to prefer similarity and to dislike those who hold different opinions from us, um, I'm a parent of two boys who went through uh, a private school in New Haven, Connecticut, and are now at a private school at a private high school. And um, this, this question first came to my mind because of seeing how my boys in their private school in New Haven that does have its uh, subculture conflicts, um, how the schools were very careful. All the private schools in New Haven are like this, and probably the ones in Atlanta too, though I don't know, but they were very much you know, enhancing uh, and speaking very respectfully and teaching kids about different kinds of diversity. Here's Kwanzaa, here's Christmas, here's Hanukkah, here's all these different, here's what different people do, um, and highlighting the values of diversity. Um, if we're built to have an initial preference for the similar, 
and a dispreference for the different, we might find that this, I mean, I don't know how, but it might be that this kind of message interacts in one way with our core system, but this kind of message, highlighting the similarities of all peoples um, across groups, the ways in which Liz said we all really are the same, really, at a fundamental level, these two kinds of approaches might really interact in very, very different ways with, with our initial system. And it might be that one of these is much more effective than another at enhancing and promoting uh, tolerance and acceptance. So to conclude, I just want to say that you know what I see in these babies is uh, a, perhaps a simplified, but a, you know, the infant mind is a microcosm that reflects all of both the, the inherent seeds of good and the inherent seeds of strife and conflict and maybe we want to call it evil that we see in human nature. Babies are humans too, so um, all of these questions that we've been asking uh, through, the, con through the, the conference, you know, they have their roots in human nature and it's very much about how the, the interplay um, as Gustavo and, and Liz were saying, the interplay between uh, our, our initial human nature and the environments and cultures and institutions in which we, in which we find ourselves and develop. And with that, I want to thank my collaborators and thank you all very The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.